I was trying to create an experience for a viewer where they would walk in and feel transformed and feel a kind of transcendence in their bodies. Hey everyone, I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to new media artist Nancy Baker Cahill. Nancy's known for work that examines power, selfhood, and embodied consciousness at the intersection of fine art, social justice, and emerging technologies such as augmented reality. She's the founder and artistic director of Fourth Wall, a free augmented reality app that is an art platform exploring resistance and inclusive creative expression. Its intention is to challenge traditional conventions of public art and introduce a participatory, immersive art experience. Her geolocated augmented reality installations have been exhibited globally and have earned her profiles in the New York Times, Freeze Magazine, and the Art Newspaper, among other publications. And she was included in Art News' list of 2021 deciders. Her work was featured at the 2022 Tribeca Film Festival in the immersive main competition and was on 90 screens in Times Square in New York City for the entire month of July as part of the Midnight Moments program. She's an incredibly thoughtful and compelling new media artist, as well as a powerful voice for justice and inclusion. Here's Nancy. My name is Nancy Baker Cahill. I live and work in Los Angeles, California. And I'm a new media artist who examines systemic power, selfhood, and embodied consciousness through drawing and shared immersive space. And I'm also the founder and artistic director of Fourth Wall, which is a free augmented reality art platform exploring resistance and inclusive creative expression. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I cannot wait to unpack all of that. But before we get to this fully developed version of Nancy Baker Cahill. I love to go back to the formative years to see what you were working with. Can you paint the picture of your childhood? Well, I was really fortunate to grow up just outside of Boston, which has a pretty robust public school system. As a kid, I was a total bookworm. I read everything I could get my hands on, but was especially taken with science fiction and thrillers. That was sort of my literary diet for a long time. I grew up in a very politically-minded family. My father was a local politician, came from a long line of local politicians. He really inculcated in me a deep sense of civic obligation and civic duty. 
and really just kind of civics in general, the importance of, of civic engagement. So I, from a very early age, I was knocking on doors, having doors slammed in my face as we canvassed for various candidates. Boston, while being a very complicated and flawed city on many different levels, did have a colorful roster of Democratic candidates when I was younger. And so getting to know some of them and, and working actively for them was really fun and really formative. I now recognize that it, it deeply shaped my approach to art and art making as an adult. That's why I asked the question, because we always unearth some, you know, formative elements that actually turn up in your career and also in your purpose. It's fascinating to me how it all kind of alchemizes as a person grows up and these experiences end up really informing what they end up doing. And I loved hearing this story of you canvassing as a kid because it paints this really graphic picture of both an engaged dad who's like interested in teaching his child about what's important and also somebody who's interested in exposing you to the raw edges of what it looks like to actually create change. Yeah, you know, I feel really fortunate in that regard. My father is is nothing if not persistent. And so having doors slammed in the face was never a deterrent. But I do think that it was great role modeling in terms of resiliency, accepting no, but continuing on the journey and, and in the pursuit of whatever it was we were trying to achieve. Yeah, and it seems like it's kind of a whole picture of some people aren't going to agree with you, but it's not a personal rejection. So you don't need to get downtrodden by this. Yeah, that's a great additional window into it. I wish more of that had stuck. I was always sort of like, that's so rude, you know, and it's like, no, it isn't. They don't want to be bothered. We, we move on. What about your mom? Where is she in this picture? Was she also politically active? No, my mother wasn't politically active. But what my mother really brought to me a whole different type of resilience. My mother has overcome all kinds of brushes with death medically. And she's just an incredible fighter. I think my mother, perhaps her greatest gift to me is her irreverence. My father's a very serious person and my mother is not. And she finds humor, often dark humor, in literally almost anything. And so I'm deeply grateful for that. That that was that was also very formative and certainly inflected my worldview. <laughs> it's like a great temperance to anything overly ideological. Let's just say I've never been too susceptible to orthodoxy of any kind. Talk to me about the teenage years, because those can be rife with awkwardness or angst or needing to sort of break free from certain constructs. What was it like for you and where were you growing? I, again, was so lucky to go to an exceptional public school, a big, diverse public school called Brookline High. I was raised in an incredibly strict household, which also, I would say, fed my deep suspicion of authority and my own subversive instincts. So I have known from the beginning that I do not like being told what to do. And I find excessively strict regimes incredibly oppressive. And I do think that that actually shaped my interest in really examining power structures as well. So high school was both an, you know, incredible escape. You know, it was late 80s. It was a time, for me anyway, of tremendous angst. I looked like and wanted to be Robert Smith from The Cure, a, a disastrous hair-dye decision, I would say, that I made over and over again. But I was really, really fortunate to 
be a part of it. This was like a rare moment in history. And I've talked about this with other friends of mine who graduated an extraordinary arts program, whether it was the visual arts, theater, and music, oh my God, was like next level. So we were treated at every level like professional artists. And I think that was a real anchor to Windward for me. I had an extraordinary teacher, Asna Sens, who was my mentor and oftentimes a surrogate parent. So as we all navigated the upheaval, social, political, all of those fraught cultural winds, we had this community and this resource. I can't even express how lucky I was. Almost to a fault, I, I graduated thinking I was a professional artist and that I didn't need to learn much more. And I was quickly uh, disabused of that when I went to college. But it was a time of great freedom. I could go virtually anywhere I wanted, whenever I wanted. And then I had this incredible program that I was a part of and, and friends and community that were all that all took our creative crafts really seriously. That was my escape. And that was the source of all of my joy. Not that I can remember experiencing a tremendous amount of joy during that period, but it, it was really kind of a lifesaver. I can see that because when you can kind of be amongst a tribe that affords you acceptance and challenges you to find your own voice and to express yourself, um, you develop a kind of decision-making and creative agency that whether you go on to become an artist or not, it, it informs how you navigate the world in a really empowered way. I think it was a really rare time. I've been told that, that, that those programs actually have been defunded somewhat. They're not nearly as they're... Oh, yeah, they don't exist anymore. They don't it's exist. a tragedy. Yeah, it's, it really, really is. Because I look at my peers, and they've all gone on to do wildly creative things, and they're all successful in different arenas, whether it's Hollywood or the art world or even academia. Because at that crucial moment of neuroplasticity, we were encouraged to explore and to believe and trust in our own creative instincts. And I just don't think that that's all that common anymore. And I would say that the creative piece of learning, which is so crucial, has also been excised. I'm making gross generalizations here, but as our public education systems have been so gutted for political reasons, you know, we've really foreclosed a lot of innovation and potential for innovation by cutting out that that crucial part of pedagogy. Yes, my opinion too, and I'm really grateful to hear you say it. I also loved that you pointed out that that's a really crucial time of neuroplasticity. I think that's an important thing for all of us to be thinking about. I also think that kind of program kind of trains you to look at the world for possibilities and how you might enact those possibilities. And it's the exact opposite when people are telling you what to memorize and how to get an A on a test. That's programming you to just follow rules and not challenge things. And I think that's a problem. And I just learned this morning uh, on my run, I was listening to this extraordinary uh, podcast, that the whole expression thinking outside the box is related to an exercise where you're challenged to connect nine dots with four lines. You know, most people think it's easy when they first look at it, and then they realize, oh, God, no, this is actually really complicated and difficult. And apparently the answer, spoiler alert, involves... (laughs) drawing a line outside of the box. And that's where outside the box thinking comes from that expression. And I think that's so interesting. I didn't know that. What a great thing to learn. 
I'm going to win the next trivia uh, night. <laughs> I know, but it was profound to think about you haven't yet developed the the skill, the software, the the instinct to to th- literally think outside the box and you can't just tell someone to do that. You literally have to train your brain to do that. So I'm just really grateful that my brain through a variety of influences has been trained to think oftentimes outside the box. So with that tremendous public program of arts education, that probably informed your decision to study art at Williams College. But can you kind of unpack that decision making for me and what the college experience was like for you? Yeah, I transferred to Williams from a college in Minnesota called McAllister College. And I had applied actually to RISD and Williams, and I had gotten into both. I was told by the people paying for my education, aka my parents, that they would pay for Williams. So I did not go to art school as a result. So given that non-choice, which I do not regret in retrospect, really grateful for the education I got, I knew that I wanted to pursue that first and foremost in any way I could. The art faculty was small but mighty at the time, and I also knew that I had this twin star, this real interest in political theory. And so I I really took as many of those classes as I could in addition to the art classes. So I would say that defined my college career, those two things. With hindsight now, you can look back on those experiences, the same way you look back on your canvassing with your dad and all of your mother's resilience. Is there anything from the college years that really was very impactful, residual experience? Yeah, I think, well, one, just the basic rigor. I feel like I, it was the first time in my life that I really understood the value of critical thinking and, and, and was taught how to think critically. Prior to that, as, as wonderful as my education had been up to that point, I'd never really learned those specific tools and skills. I also had the enormous fortune to meet a variety of people who were interested in political subversion. And so with a few other classmates, we formed an agitative propaganda group called Eat Me. And Eat Me took... uh, Oh my god, I love you, Nancy. (laughs) (laughs) Eat Me took a less earnest approach to addressing things like, oh, uh, sexual violence, eating disorders, and body image. You know, we we, we took on the, the issues at the time with Abby Hoffman as our sort of North Star. And it was extraordinarily formative and for me anyway, you know, not just cathartic, but again, kind of engaged these impulses to ask critical questions, jolt people out of a kind of inertia using performative techniques. Uh, Of course, the the use of spectacle is often very persuasive as well. So, and I think what was really revelatory to me too, was that, you know, at the time, when we were having all these really charged conversations, I made a lot of assumptions, as one does. I always assumed that the men, and I'm being very sort of reductive and binary now because this was a reflection of the time, a lot of the men that took women's studies classes, I I thought they would be very natural allies and would support our cause. And in many cases, it was like football players. That kind of gave me a more nuanced appreciation for what allyship could be and, you know, if engaged thoughtfully. I learned a lot, I have to say. I was deeply unhappy in college. I was depressed 95% of the time. And the 5% of the time I wasn't was when I was off campus. But when I look back, I do think that it cemented my intellectual hunger and appetite, which remains 
truly rapacious. I love learning. I never tire of it. And I think because I was fortunate enough to get those foundational skills, it's something that that is now to me like as necessary as breathing. Hard same. But I do want to acknowledge your feeling of depression. And do you think that was because you were kind of confined to an institution with rules and deadlines and people telling you what to do when you know you don't like that? I mean, what was the nature of the depression? And how do you not get yourself in those situations now? Oddly enough, it's probably also related to embodied consciousness. I didn't want to go there. (laughs) So that was one roadblock from the from the jump. And this is no disrespect to Western Massachusetts. That is not where my body, my corporeal self likes to be. I find them to be dark, satanic hills. I don't <laughs> like the feeling. I feel claustrophobic. It's the, I feel the same way in other parts of the Northeast, which is why I couldn't be happier to be in California and you'll have to drag me out of your feet first. So I didn't like or appreciate my environment. I was mystified by my peers who loved it and found it idyllic. I found it oppressive. And it was only until my friend Valerie actually got me into hiking that I found another escape, which is to say, when you ascend, you have a different perspective. That was something I started to do regularly toward the end, just to kind of keep myself from going insane. And the other part of it was that socially, I found it really difficult because of course I'd come from such a culturally and rich and diverse high school environment, any number of different languages being spoken. You walk down the hall and you'd hear at least 10 different languages being spoken. And I did not have a tribe until we found it eat me, you know, at the end, but it took me a long time to find my way socially. I, I truly just felt like a fish out of water most of the time. So that kind of misfit feeling combined with having my mind blown regularly by these extraordinary professors and texts that I was engaged with, it really threw me off my axis. And it took me a little while to recover. And it took me a long while to recover, actually. You know, thank you for sharing that. I think oftentimes we're not given permission, and therefore we don't give ourselves permission to actually sort of acknowledge that our bodies respond to space, both built space and geographic space. And the importance of a tribe, which it sounds like you had in high school, and then you, you know, really didn't find easily in college. So you also felt the absence, the grief of loss of a tribe is profound. But, you know, I'm also hearing in a very empowered way, you've taken all the learning from that experience, and you're now deploying it in your adult life, which is what we're supposed to do with these experiences. <laughs> well, so I'm reading this wonderful book, I've just started it, which I highly recommend to your listeners called Ways of Being by James Bridle. You know, there are all different types of, of intelligences. And what I think a lot about is, is the intelligence of the body, the embrainment, as we call it, of the body, that it's not, you know, everything we know isn't contained in that mysterious organ that floats around in our skull that, you know, we know things on a cellular level. And I just knew in my body that that was not the environment for me. I got through it. And I'm very fortunate. I would never it's certainly not like growing up in a war torn country or anything, you know, famine or anything like that. If, you know, these are these are really bougie concerns uh, having to live in Western Massachusetts. But it just it did. It's that little thing that throws you off kilter. 
I totally get it. And I appreciate the disclaimer, but you know, your experience is your experience. And I think unpacking it for us in such granular detail also helps everybody else relate to their own experiences and also learn how to sort of process them for the positivity that you have done here. So thank you for that. And I'm also wondering did you get the fuck out? Like when you graduated, where did you go? <laughs> yeah, so my grand intention was to quote unquote revolutionize the media. That was my modest goal. I landed in public television, which is not where anyone should go uh, to innovate, although it was a wonderful landing pad right out of college. And I worked as a, an intern on some, on a, the American Experience documentary series. But then my, my first kind of quote real job was for the descriptive video service, which is a platform that provides narrative description of TV and movies for the blind and visually impaired. So I wrote the descriptive narration. So it was not only like a great writing job, but more importantly, underscored for me what is essential about making cultural products, cultural media accessible to to everyone. Access to storytelling isn't a quote right but it certainly should be something that everyone is able to participate in because it's a deeply, deeply human need we have to hear and tell stories and share stories. And so it allowed us to do that. And it forced me to become a much pithier and more thoughtful and observant writer because I had no, you know, I was limited to the, to the pauses in between dialogue or, um, you know, sound effects. You might have 10 seconds to communicate a tremendous amount of information. And that's what I did. This is fascinating. It's so meta, too, because you're understanding, the first, the power of storytelling and what a deeply human need it is and why it's important to make sure it's accessible to everyone, but then also needing to sort of reverse engineer the storytelling in a way that makes it applicable to a different set of bodies. Totally. And it's a particular responsibility to choose and isolate those moments or details that are relevant to the story. In other words, you could focus on a random vase in the background, but you haven't served the story. And it literally forces you to kind of co-create with the storytellers what essential data has to be communicated for this story to remain fluid and coherent. So oftentimes it would be, you know, describing a lunge or grabs a knife, or, you know, whatever it is that allows those everything else to make sense. Um, you would be doing the, the, the listener or the viewer a disservice by making, honestly, irresponsible choices around <laughs> details. It was kind of interesting. And it was there that I met my then husband. He is a screenwriter and TV writer, and he really needed to kind of break the mold, break out of public television, because you certainly can spend your whole life there. And that's not a bad way to spend your life at all. But he really wanted to tell stories on a, on a bigger stage. And so we got married and moved out to California. And that was another sort of, I would say, seismic change in my life, I guess it was 1995. You clearly like California. You've already mentioned that. Did your, How did your body feel when you got to Cali? Well, what's kind of funny is actually when, when we drove in on Melrose back in the day, I was dismayed. I was like, ugh. I looked at all the like vernacular architecture, which I, know, of course, now love. And, I, and you know, coming from Boston, it's, it's an antipodal. I mean, you really couldn't choose two more radically different cities. So I was at first quite devastated, drowned 
all my sorrows for about a year eating Trader Joe's cookies and feeling sorry for myself. I actually grew to love it rather quickly after that. There's something about the openness of our landscape. I don't know, it just works with my my soul. I feel the same kind of expansiveness of the landscape, and I don't mean this to sound colonizing at all. I just mean literally there is so much space that is available in like just when you look up, it is just broad and vast and it's not crowded by a lot of to me, claustrophobic trees, that to me kind of cracked something open inside of me. So this is where I feel most at home and most grounded. Well, I'm happy you found your home and your body feels at peace there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. 
and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Okay, so 1995 was seismic. You're eating cookies. Then what happens? Because I know you graduated in 92, and then your art career really doesn't get started in earnest until around 2007. So I think there's a motherhood chapter here that I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting to hear. Correct. Yes. Best laid plans. The tr- If I'm being really honest, I had intended when we got to Los Angeles to start an art career. And what I found was that I was so deeply disoriented and became almost like if there's an equivalent for agoraphobia, but that's related to creativity, that's what I had. I was terrified of coming out of my brain, of my body, whatever. And I couldn't, every sort of creative fit fit and start that I took in my mind was a failure and didn't reflect whatever it was I was feeling. And so I essentially gave up and had children. And my first child, my beautiful daughter, Belen, was born with quite a few medical challenges. And so that really occupied me and my attention for a long time. And mercifully, she's totally healthy and amazing now. But that kind of tone set what was to come. And I ended up having two more children, my beautiful boys. And throughout that whole period, really through until 2005, I was engaged in a a real internal war with myself. I knew that I wanted to be making art, but I, I was gripped with a kind of paralysis that is difficult to describe. I... I felt I probably couldn't do it. I probably shouldn't do it. What if I did do it and I failed? And so it all, all of that creative energy just comes out sideways. You know, I took up like knitting and became adept at like knitting lace, 
which has done me no good. I like, you know, like <laughs> things like that, you know. I wrote a book proposal and I got an agent. I never finished the book. I was trying desperately and I got deeply depressed again. So that that returned. So it was really in 2005 when my when my son Rowan was born, um, my third third and last child, I remember the exact moment where I was just sitting in my ex-husband's office and I was thinking, what am I do like what am I doing? Like I could be hit by a bus tomorrow and what have I done? I mean, of course I have these three beautiful, wonderful children, but I like I'm not doing the thing that I know I'm meant to do. And how on earth do I start? And I just started really small. I just started drawing again, which has always been drawing and video have always been my primary media that I, you know, feel most fluent and comfortable with. And I would say drawing is even more of a first language than than English. I, I, it's just, it is the most direct translation of what I'm feeling into something material or manifest. You know, I just started drawing and what ended up happening is it, it just, the dam cracked open. I mean, it just, everything I had been holding in containing started come rushing out like a torrent. And honestly, it just hasn't stopped since then. <laughs> so note to anyone who is repressing their creative instincts, they're going to come out. <laughs> you might not know when, but they're coming. So if you could avoid repressing them, do. There's this great quote, I believe it was Brene Brown, who said something like, unused creativity doesn't just disappear, it metastasizes. It does. And you've described this, and I'm, I'm really grateful you talked about that kind of paralysis. Because I've been through the same thing, not maybe not quite as intense or I've definitely been through paralysis and I've had my creativity come out sideways and I've questioned it and I've been fearful and yeah, it gets squirted out in all kinds of different ways that were like sort of false starts and like weird attempts. I don't think I've ever quite put it together like that. I think it's important that we talk about creativity and how it gets sometimes stampeded or sometimes locked in chambers that we don't quite understand how to unlock again. It sounds like you just started drawing, you just took it back to a familiar place, and you let it out in small ways, which became bigger and bigger and bigger, and the flow started again. I was pretty protective of myself at first. I just did it for myself and forgave myself when it wasn't great. And I remember I had a professor at, in college who forced us to hold on to our, quote, mistakes, the, you know, the drawings, the, the artworks we wanted to rip up and throw away, because he really identified those as our teachers, that that's where you learn the most. That's and I, torture. Yeah, I know, I know, it's horrible. But it's a practice I continue, because even if there's just one thing that did work, that's valuable. And it's also instructive to remember what not to do again. I had to be a little more generous with myself than I normally am. I'm a pretty hard driving boss of myself. But I realized that that muscle had not completely atrophied and could be retrained. And I really am speaking both literally and metaphorically here. It became my greatest passion, which I'd always dreamed it would. It wasn't until I kind of really slogged it out for quite a while that it became so. I don't know why I'm all into quotes right now, but there's another saying about how what we're what we're really afraid of is not failure. It's assuming our power. Oh, stepping into it. And that is more true for women and non-binary folks than it is anyone else. 
not to go on a diatribe about heteropatriarchy, but I had actually allowed myself and chosen to box myself into a more traditional lifestyle. And with that decision comes all of the cultural baggage that created that decision and informed it and continues to. And so that was very difficult to both resist, undo, and ultimately transcend. There's a moment when you discover that you're, you're locked in this box, but you also have the keys, and then becomes this sort of terrifying trajectory of unlocking it and taking a few steps out of the box and feeling your way. And in many cases, confusing the people around you who are comfortable with you in the box, you know, becoming a target for people who are uncomfortable with this kind of change. Yeah, I mean, that's beautifully said. And I think also being acutely aware, and yet not aware enough of the kind of compound damage that's possible when you bring children into the equation. So when you start to claim for yourself, your dreams, desires, wants, needs, goals, there are other people involved as well. And certainly that's the case with divorce. I I mean, maybe there are some divorces that are flawless and easy and amicable and nobody's worse off afterwards um, or experiences any pain. That that hasn't been my experience. Yeah, it's a very complicated thing to claim those things for yourself, particularly as, again, I hate to binary gendering in any way, but particularly as a mother in this culture, that's a real risk. And it comes with consequences. Yeah, I can imagine. And that sounds complex and important. I don't have children. But the thing that I'm hearing is that you ultimately made a choice to claim your wants, needs, desires, and authentic self. And I can't imagine that role modeling that for your children isn't net positive. It has to be, right? I think ultimately, and hopefully, yes. And I think that as time goes on, that becomes increasingly likely and apparent. But it certainly is grueling in the moment and confusing, I think, especially to younger kids. It's certainly not a decision that I regret because it has allowed me to pursue this passion, but also to include those years that at the time felt really creatively fallow, but in fact really forged the artist I am now. I remember at one point I, I had a, you know, because it's very complicated. Motherhood's very complicated. Or I don't even want to say parenthood because it really is gendered um, in the art world. And I had a curator to the studio and create. I just finished a suite of, I think, 75 drawings. I was really excited about them. And they were called manifestos. She was asking me about them and I was telling her about them. And I don't even remember how this came up. She said, does this have anything to do with your being a mother? And I said, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with being a mother. This is, this is my work. It's separate. It's all separate. I did like never the train shall meet. And she shook her head and was like, I don't think you understand. This is everything to do with motherhood because the drawings themselves were these very abstract articulations of struggle and of two opposing forces in a kind of dynamic tension. She rightly identified that deep internal conflict and the pull toward one thing and the push toward another, and how that is an irresolvable dynamic, thus iterated 75 times. <laughs> it certainly remains, you know, that, that tension. Irresolvable means not necessarily trying to 
change it or solve it, but growing to a place where you can live with that kind of tension, that kind of discomfort, and accept it and not be in resistance all the time of that like tension, but more in an acceptance of it. And in some ways, tension can actually really propel us forward. I completely agree. And I and I have to say embracing it has just opened up all kinds of artistic risk taking, honestly. Ooh, I'm excited to hear all about this artistic risk taking because you have been on a like rocket like trajectory since the floodgates opened. And man, have you gotten into some interesting work. So can you kind of give us the overview of your career from that moment when you started drawing to now where you're all into augmented reality and embodied consciousness and (laughs) well you know it's so funny I think that there's this way in which things are much clearer when we look backward because they're not always clear when we're in the moment and when I look backward I can see that I have been trying and attempting to make immersive experiences not quite from the beginning but kind of from the beginning and have been trying to make VR for a very long time before I actually started working in VR and I should say that one greatly valuable thing my ex-husband said to me was, you know, early on before I'd started drawing, I was, I remember I was just sobbing and calling myself a failure. And he said, you can't call yourself a failure when you haven't even tried. Oh, damn. I know. Tough medicine, but, but really good medicine. And so when I look back, I see, oh, this is a long story of trying and trying different things and some of them working and some of them not. And I could get into a whole conversation around the connection between drawing and video, drawing and cinema. I believe they are intimately entangled because when we look back to sort of Paleolithic cave painting, those cave paintings were misidentified early on as sort of anatomically incorrect animals. And what they've since discovered now that they've looked at these artworks with a flickering torch is that actually they were sort of pre-animation they they were animating yeah so like when they looked at it yeah so when they look at it you know archaeologists would look at a three-headed you know mastodon or a you know three-legged saber-toothed tiger you know oh those silly paleolithic humans really didn't understand anatomy they understood it acutely and there are all these striations and these marks on the walls that if you're shining a contemporary light on them they, they don't make any sense but when you kill the lights and you just walk with a torch and you wave the torch back and forth there's movement oh my god it's kind of incredible i never underestimate humans man never we knew that they weren't living in the caves they were going into the caves for some purpose other than you know it may have been seeking some sort of transcendence which is a you know, one of a common opinion some sort of mind altering experience they would eat mushrooms and go in the cave, right? I mean, I don't know if they did or didn't eat mushrooms. But I want to do that. I definitely <laughs> do too. And, <laughs> but I think most importantly, we have been drawn to this type of storytelling. And so I have always felt that what contemporary technologies, if we deploy them thoughtfully and intentionally and with some criticality, they too can kind of recreate transcendent experiences that are embodied and that engage embodied consciousness. <gasps> That's what you're doing. Yes. That makes perfect sense. Yes. That end up really being just a more three-dimensional version of same. In every case, 
it is an invitation into a different experience of reality, a different understanding of what is seen, perceived, felt, heard, tasted, smelled, um, engaging all of those senses to just achieve a different type of connection and to sort of tap into that distributed neural network that we all share, which is what grounds us and gives us a sense of not just community, but existential purpose. So when I look back, I, I didn't get right back into video immediately because, of course, all of the technology had catapulted forward. And I, of course, I hadn't kept up with anything, not even Photoshop. So I've had to do a tremendous amount of learning. There's no end to the learning. But as Anne Lamott would say, bird by bird, I just started tackling one thing after another. And so I, I, I've pretty much taught myself to do most everything. Or I've gotten somebody to just show me how to do it. And then I do it. And then I learn beyond that. But, you know, I started spray painting and I didn't do it in an orthodox way. And then I refined that to airbrushing. And I developed a whole body of work that then became a video series that was then my very first museum show, which was an immersive experience. It was immersive video, immersive sound. And that kind of changed everything. And when I look back, I was like, oh, I was trying to make VR. I didn't realize it. You know, I was trying to create an experience for a viewer where they would walk in and feel transformed and feel a kind of transcendence in their bodies. And you would be speaking to all of their senses. Yes, except for taste and smell at that point. I have a, an exciting opportunity coming up soon that actually will allow for all of those things. <laughs> so <gasps> it's like the first time in my life I will have been able to engage all sentences. So I'm like geeking so hard on that one. It wasn't until I had, de- I had developed a massive sort of immersive drawing series. And by immersive, I just mean large scale that received a very powerful response from people who s- who'd seen it. It was a very visceral series and it was called Surds. And it was inspired by a book called Aftermath by a feminist philosopher named Susan Bryson, who really talks about the way she as a an abstract thinker, and as a person who lived this life of the mind, metabolized this very animal sexual assault that had occurred on her body to her body. And so it was really about the way that trauma lives in the body. And I was very compelled by that. And she said the only way that she could really understand and process her trauma was using philosophical math, because there are these patterns in math that made sense of the senseless. And actually, absurd means senseless. So it's like absurd is nonsense, no sense. And this whole series, and because of the visceral reaction of the people that had engaged with the drawings, mostly women had very visceral reactions, I realized I wanted to push that much further. I wanted to put them inside the drawing. And it was then, and in that very same meeting that I described with that curator, Caroline Conorides, who said, you're wrong, all your work is about this. She said, well, you know, I was sort of gnashing my teeth and wringing my hands about how I wanted to put people inside the drawings. And she said, well, why don't you just do it in VR? That was the game-changing moment because I hadn't thought about VR since I was an undergraduate. Of course, we talked about it in 92. We talked about it in terms of immersive journalism and empathy and how do you create empathy. And could you use these technologies as like empathy machines, which of course is now a very contested and, and complicated presupposition. That changed really everything, that conversation. And then, you know, my brother-in-law and my son built me this Mad Max computer and I got some VR drawing software and and that began my whole journey and led to augmented reality, which has led to 3D software, which has led to the work I'm doing now, which is, you know, includes projection mapping and immersive video. It's been an extraordinary confluence of both tools that are available to me, having the privilege 
to have access to electricity, which enables those tools to function. And then also kind of being able to blend the ideas that come from my life experience, all of the reading I do with these projects and having tremendous collaborators and teams. I can't underscore enough how important teams are. So as I sort of built my practice out brick by brick in terms of what I was making, I was also building it out in terms of my community because I didn't have, you know, the advantage of an art school education. So I didn't have that community or that built in infrastructure. So I basically had to build my own infrastructure. That's a different type of creative freedom. You get to pick and choose. You're not just stuck with people. And so I feel tremendously lucky that I have this scaffolding of, of peers and artists and, and curators and, people in institutions and out who I think comprise a, a beautiful ecosystem that's ever growing and ever expanding. And, and so I'm very lucky to be a part of it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that it's sometimes culturally we talk too much about the work as in the output, the finished product, and we don't talk enough about the creative design of a sustainable practice to continue creating that work. And of course, nobody makes anything in a vacuum. Then the minute you want to make this your livelihood, you need to rely on other people. Building that out in a way that affords you the freedom, the resources, and the access you need to create a sustainable practice is such an important aspect of the business side of being an artist. I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad you said that. You know, I don't think it is taught, at least it's not taught broadly. And I kind of came to it out of a sense of desperation and truly just feeling so isolated. But it, it is essential to any practice. And I actually did, I did a TED Talk in 2018 about using AR as a tool for equity and access. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So let's get into that, because maybe you can also unpack your creative process as you share about the TED Talk. It really is just to really amplify your point, which is that I, I started the TED Talk really and ended it with the myth of the lone genius, the lone genius artist, and that that is a complete fallacy. And it's not just that, of course, we need and want to engage different people with, with different skills, you know, on different projects to, to, to realize those projects. But it's also about, I think, being open to and recognizing in others their own creative contributions and to the, to the discourse we have and share 
and that that those conversations, conversations with other artists generally, and and thinkers with anybody, actually, I don't want to limit it to artists, that we're essentially interdependent and that those conversations are often what allow us to grow. Like for me anyway, I just get so much out of listening to and learning from other people. Amen, sister. Me too. Yes. You're extraordinary in that way. And that that too can shape your practice. Like our mutual friend, Tanya, was one of my very first collaborators on Fourth Wall App on my AR platform. Wait, I got to back you up for a second because we need to set up for the listeners what the Fourth Wall App is. And then also, I just want to remind our listeners that the Tanya you're referring to is Tanya Aguiniga, and she's episode 13 of Clever. Yes, the Fourth Wall App is a free app on the App Store. It's also available on Android, Google Play. And I developed it with my then team at Drive Studios, first and foremost, to challenge notions of public art, who has access to public art, who decides what public art is, where it is, how it's experienced, but also to give access to these VR drawings that I had made, which were I mean, basically the barrier to entry, not just to create VR, but to experience VR is very high because you need a certain Mm -hmm. type of hardware and obviously you need that software as well. And so I really wanted to make these things available to a broad public and an unknown public. So we basically, with my team, we translated my VR drawings into augmented reality in three dimensions and the invitation of the app really, which was and remains with on that part of the app was for people to quote-unquote, place or locate these different artworks in the context of their choosing so that they would basically co-create and have their own art experience and create their own content and meaning for the work, which was an extraordinary and remains an extraordinary thing because people do the most amazing things with their imaginations. Yes, they do. And I've seen some of it and I've experienced it myself. And the other thing that, you know, as you're talking about access, that's really interesting to me is it's a deliberate removal of the gallery as a intermediary and as a gatekeeper. And I really wanted to take it outside the realm of any institution of permission. And that included museums. I I just felt, I felt, what about a one-to-one experience? My experience working with communities that haven't had access to the kinds of art programs that I did is that I do believe most people have tremendous creativity inside of them. And when you invite that opportunity to engage what comes out is like, honestly, like if you want to have your faith in humanity restored, just do that. Like, it's just like, it's amazing. And from work I'd done before, and, and you know, that felt really important to me. But it was Tanya, who took one of my drawings, which is called Hollow Point 101. And it's based on a type of ammunition that does extraordinary damage. And this is a, imagine a drawing in three dimensions that almost looks like a rupture in space with radiating sort of shrapnel coming out of it. But it's also very beautiful. So it sounds very violent, but it's also quite alluring visually. So she was down at the border wall where she does a lot of her work and is an activist and put the drawing in AR in the United States and pulled it actively pulled it through the border wall into Mexico. And that was this extraordinary (sighs) moment, which is, yes, exactly, your reaction. That one gesture spoke volumes. It was deeply, deeply moving and powerful. And I thought, of course, leave it to an artist, particularly an artist like Tanya, to identify immediately, not just the potential of this medium, but how it could be deployed to 
as commentary and as insight into larger questions of borders and borderlessness and art and language and all of that. That's a wall that was put up for all the wrong reasons, but that this can transcend. She and my friend Deborah were the very first artists I asked when this light bulb went off. I thought, you know, this has been a great tool for me to sort of engage this unknown unseen audience. But what if I collaborated with artists like Tanya, artists who were so rigorous in their practices, who have so much to say, and invited them to geolocate their work in contexts where it would have the most resonance and meaning outside of any white cube, where they get to define that context. And so the very first piece Tanya did was a beautiful sculpture. It was a photograph of a sculpture, and it's there now. We checked last time we were there. Uh, It's called Impotence Incarnate. And it's this kind of limp form that just hangs in space. And we put it directly over the border wall at Playa de Tijuana. It sits there sort of straddling that ugly scar of a fence as this kind of reminder of what it feels like. And the power of that image in that exact location, you know, think about it. If we'd ha- if we want to try to build something, you'd have to get permits, It'd raise all kinds of suspicion, but it's invisible to the naked eye. So you can only see it through the prosthesis of your phone, of the camera of your phone. And so for that reason, it just, to me, occupies this beautiful poetic space that is non-space, that is shared cultural thought space, that can't be policed, that can't be monetized, or it will be, I'm sure. But at least for us, the way that we operate and the way that I operate the app, it is with none of those concerns. It is to literally ignite meaning in situ. I love what you're doing. I I also love the technical and philosophical rigor that you're applying to ideas of empathy, inclusiveness, embodied consciousness, as you say, but also a very generative and generous community building that is accessible for, for everyone to sort of find their own meaning and kind of own it a little bit on their own. Clearly, you're a very empowered person, and you need a healthy ego to do that, but it's not ego-driven. I mean, this is an example to me of, of what, when we really focus on how our work can bless or enhance the lives of other people, this is what it starts to look like, because it starts to be part your creation and then part in the hands of other people. And it's both an offering and an invitation and a challenge all wrapped up in one. Oh, my God, that is the most beautiful. I would like to just print that out and put it next to my computer so I could look at it every day. Thank you so much. That is such a gorgeous and generous summary. And I think what drives me and and really animates all of my desire to work this way is a just abiding and deep concern around issues of justice. Yeah, I feel that. I find myself, yeah, you know, at times I feel sometimes like a child in in my sense of kind of that, but, you know, looking at the world and, and, and consuming all that is, you know, around us. And I think that's not fair. Like I, I can identify that that's not fair and that, and that, you know, the lesson that has to be, they do say that like, you know, like the lesson that I seem to have to learn over and over again is that, that there is no fair. That's not you know, that's, that's a fallacy to think that the things are really ever fair. And so how can we take steps, even small steps to 
start to redress some of that in, in whatever ways we can. I think you're touching on something that's very foundational, but this, this idea of, you know, coming to terms with the fact that things aren't fair frequently results in a kind of resignation, but that's not what you're saying at all. Because I think a more productive and creative and generative way to think about things being not fair is we can make them less not fair. We can make incremental steps towards balancing things. We can also change the way unfairness is rolled out. It doesn't have to be, you know, the certain group of disadvantaged people stay disadvantaged. Maybe the pendulum flips. If there is a balance of positive and negative, that balance can be evolving. And so resignation is exactly the opposite of what we need. That's decay and stagnation. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I think that because people are exhausted right now by the fire hose of terrible news. Worn the fuck out. Right? And it's sometimes very healthy, by the way, to unplug and just pause, take a break. You know, that that can be very mentally healthy. For me, really facing a lot of these difficult ideas, realities, uh, systems is fuel. And unless I am deeply depressed, which is, of course, as we discussed before, that that forecloses all action. To me, I I don't know, it it animates me, it it quickens my pulse, it makes me jump out of bed, I feel like (laughs) there's so much work to do. And that struggle never ends. It's not like it all just gets tied up neatly with a bow. But like, you know, particularly with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and we know where this could go. Shaking my fist. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, thank goodness, none of the organizers in Kansas threw up their hands and figured, well, it's a conservative state. Let's not let's not bother here. And we witness what's happening to Trump right now. He is at the center of a multi-spoked wheel in which he is the main criminal. If none of these investigations end up bringing him down, I myself might need to take a break. But it feels to me like there might end up, I dare to dream, that there might be some consequence. Because we've, we, we're all exhausted by seeing this asymmetrical accountability. And the people who commit the smallest of infractions are penalized often, and usually depending on the color of their skin, for years or decades and then we have people like our former president who commit crimes, perhaps even on a scale that no one has yet conceived of or understands, and and we see no consequences. So that dissonance and that asymmetry is very destabilizing and depressing. But I believe that we have to keep keep at it. Well, I love that it fuels you, and it clearly does, because I can hear it in your voice. And that's one of the things that, when you talk about embodied consciousness, one of the things that was so important to me when I entered podcasting was I wanted to hear people's stories in their own voices, with their own inflection, with their own passion, because I think that informs, with a richness, the depth of the story. And you can you can tell well where people's fire is lit when you let them and give them the space to speak their own story from the depth of their soul. So I'm really grateful to you for sharing that with us. And yes, I hope there are is consequences. There better be. <laughs> Switching gears for a second, I don't want to let this podcast end without giving our listeners kind of a an exploded view of your of your 
creative process, we've, we've heard the kind of conceptual development part, but some of the work you do is so fascinating technically. Can you talk about how some of these works come together? The Slipstream series might be a good case study to unpack, but I'll let you choose what work you want to talk about. I would love to talk about Slipstream because it's what I'm currently working on. The process is actually directly relinked to the philosophical nature of the, of the work. And it also goes back to the caves. So this series begins with large-scale graphite drawings that are abstract and biomorphic, like most of the drawings I've done for the past decade. I take those drawings and tear them up, which is a other whole process that is sometimes really hard and sometimes actually very cathartic. And then I reconstitute them. I rebuild them into bespoke 3D sculptures. And they're paper-based. And because the paper curls in this very natural way, and I'm sure it's related to the physics of the paper, they really end up looking like leaves or feathers. And when they are reassembled in these bespoke sculptural arrangements, they tend to look either like an exploded bird or something people have often described them as looking like angels, which I, you know, okay, that's not my intention. (laughs) And they, they, they really contain a tremendous amount of energy because I'm using a lot of sort of circular uh, centrifugal forces. I really wanted them to look like a moment of motion that was frozen in time. So, so they're quite dynamic, actually. I take those sculptures and scan them. And in scanning them, I bring them into the computer then as 3D objects. And what happens in the scanning process is that, is that data and information is both added and subtracted. So it's this additive and subtractive co- process. So we're already talking about a project of translation where parts of the original have not only been transmuted in terms of th- their physicality, but then there's this added layer of lost information and added information. So almost like a game of telephone. I also like to think of it as a ship of Theseus, which I'll bring back in a second. So anyway, they come into the computer. Uh, I use an AI to render them as 3D objects. And they often, parts of them resemble the originals to the you know millimeter. And parts of them are glitchy, messy, blobby. I love it all because that's the new incarnation. So then I take that mutated form and I light it and I animate it and I subject it to laws of physics that are impossible outside of the software. And from there, I then again bring it into an additional software after effects to render it out as a final video. And and I've also taken the added step of taking stills from the video and having them printed by a master printer, Lapis Press. And then then you have this full journey paper to paper, but the drawing itself in no way resembles its original form. And in that sense, it is a ship of Theseus. It's like, what of the original remains? As all these pieces are taken and added and replaced and, and morphed and mutated and that sort of thing. And it all, this whole series came out of a concern, a deep concern I had with the misinformation campaigns that really kicked into high gear in 2016, but but of course in 2020 were were peak, and of course they remain peak. And so, how do we take these invented truths? How do we take the process of of mutated truth and turn it into something constructive versus destructive, and use it and deploy it in ways that that illuminate and offer new insights and tra- traverse into new territories versus 
using them as, as tools of manipulation and uh, oppression. So they're quite colorful. They're getting more and more complicated. I have a solo show coming up, and so I'm madly creating work for it. Slipstream, by the way, I should just say the reason it's called Slipstream is because Slipstream is a genre of literary fiction that describes the familiar strange or the strange familiar. So there's this whole engagement with the un- uncanny, and I really love that. I love it when you look at something and you think, I, I, I recognize something in it. I know something in it is familiar to me, but I can't put my finger on it because it's so strange. So I think all of the work does that. And and I've started to work with, it's called GPT-3. It's an AI text generator and have done a little bit of collaboration with an AI on some text to add to some of the videos. And I've had to edit the AI text fairly heavily because it's, let's just say it's it, the, the poetics are accidental, it feels. Can I just stop with something silly right now? You know how when somebody somebody speaks a, a foreign language and it's kind of sexy? That's what it sounds like when you're speaking tech. I have oh, no, no idea really? what GPT-3... Yeah, I have no idea what GPT-3 is, but say more. It sounds so good. It's a... Pro- <laughs> It's a it's a project by OpenAI. Um, you, you probably, or maybe some of your listeners have been hearing a lot of controversy actually around Dolly, sort of wonder and controversy, which is a text to image AI. And this is where, and I'm talking about Dolly right now. You, the person using the software or the platform, type in a text prompt, and based on images that the AI has aggregated, millions and millions and millions of images, it's aggregated from essentially the internet, it will generate, automatically generate a series of images based on your prompt. The possibilities are sort of infinite and endless, but it's, it's a whole other conversation. It's, it's, it's quite controversial for a variety of reasons. But with the text version, oddly enough, you'd think I'd be more interested in the visual, but I'm actually more interested in the text, the textual work, because when you input a prompt it reads the prompt and it interpolates it in its own way and then regurgitates something to you in response, either to continue your sentence or in response to your sentence. And you can, there are all these different settings. This sounds fascinating. It's, it is. Oh, it's tremendously fascinating. There are a number of artists who are huge innovators. I am literally only playing with it for this very discreet purpose. This is not the direction I'm going in at all by any means. But there are artists whose entire bodies of work are are dedicated to this, and they're brilliant and wonderful. But I'm just sort of more interested in, in, again, engaging that uncanny. Will, Will a viewer be able to tell that it is inflected with an AI voice or not? And what will feel familiar and what won't? And what of my voice remains in that original? Like what of my voice and my intention remains in that output? So it's just sort of an added layer of meaning that I'm adding to these new new pieces in some cases. I love it. And, and I'm so curious. The Slipstream series that you, that you mentioned, where do these pieces live? There's a there's an actual physical sculpture, there's a video, and then there's two paper versions. They live essentially online. I, I just showed one of them in Times Square immersively on 90 different screens all at once every night um, for three minutes for the month of July. And it was incredible. I mean, I wasn't there in person, but like just to see the images of them all being projected from these skyscrapers into this communal space, but it's also kind of a boxed in space because it's boxed in by skyscrapers. So it feels at once like it has these boundaries, but also this unlimitedness. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, I mean, that was an incredible opportunity. And, and I think because I've designed these experiences to be immersive themselves, like, and by that, I just mean the video, like take Times Square out of it. I'm really trying to play with camera work and intimacy and you feeling like you have some ability to engage with these, really these kind of imagined types of consciousness and sort of iterations. And so at that scale and with the ability to present the work in 360 on all these screens, it really fulfilled this dream I had of for just a moment, imagining that those screens had dissolved into this living, breathing, pulsing hybrid entity that, that was hot pink among other colors and bathing everybody (laughs) below in pink and, and all collectively participating for a moment in this shared moment. How exciting. Okay, so you mentioned some cool things that are coming up in the pipeline. Can you talk to me about maybe what you're working on now and what's what's coming up for you? Yeah, I mean, the things I'm allowed to talk about are imminent. So, for example, I have a solo show at Vellum Gallery here, Vellum LA, it's called, here in Los Angeles, which is an NFT gallery with the most, literally, truly the sexiest LED screens anybody has ever seen. When I first saw these screens, I was like, Oh, I mean, I'll never be able to go back to a regular. It's like, <laughs> they are insane. They're beautiful. So I have a solo show there on September 15th. And I am going to be showing again this year at Luminex, which is a citywide projection map. It's not citywide. It's actually confined to a few city blocks, but it's very dramatic. And it's um, projection. We take over the bunch of a bunch of buildings, the sides of buildings. And so it's a sound and visual projection mapped experience. And this year it includes AR. I'm actually not doing the AR. I'm just doing the projection mapping. And I have an incredible sound collaborator, Ana Luisa Petrisco, who's making the soundscape as we speak. And then I'm also participating at the Format Festival in Bentonville, Arkansas at the end of the month of September. And then there are a bunch of other things on the horizon, including the LACMA Art and Tech Grant, a project that was recently funded and awarded. And I'm really excited to do that because um, it's going to allow me to learn even more about mycelial networks and blockchain and any points of intersection and overlap that might be useful in creating new civic models of interdependence and community care and reparation. Wow, that sounds really intense. I love that you're exploring mycelial networks as a sort of source inspiration for for your work. I mean, some of the things that you've already mentioned here are sort of our collective intersubjective field, those neural networks that we're all connected to. I feel like mycelial networks is a perfect analogy for for all of that space that you're kind of working in already. Yeah, I mean, when I first started learning about them now well over a year ago, it really captivated my attention because I thought we have so many models and systems that are clearly not working. And, you know, a lot of that is related to heteropatriarchy. A lot of it is related to late capitalism. What if we really used biomimicry? What if we looked to natural systems that are incredibly efficient, that are life-sustaining and regenerative, and took a few notes. And then because of my abiding interest in blockchain technologies, you know, which are also complicated and not neutral and also inflected with a lot of the things we discussed earlier, how could we be more intentional about all of these things moving forward? Because no technology, there's no immaculate conception. <laughs> Everything is inflected with the 
builders and the people who build it and the source material and the data it it uses to do whatever it does. And that's where we have the opportunity to be more involved. And at the same time, I think decenter our very human and generally Western approaches to any number of, of uh, things, but most importantly, looking at climate change on all fronts. And by that, I mean also include the social and political and cultural. How do we survive together and in acknowledgement of that interdependence? That's beautiful. I, I also, I love your way with words. This whole talk, you've been really, your word choice has been so descriptive, so vivid. I feel like you've been painting with words and it's also been very immersive. So like you really embody everything that you're about. And it's been such a trip. And I mean, a beautiful trip to hear this story directly from you, oh, um, thank you. in that immersive way. I so appreciate your generosity. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to talk to you and to talk to someone so deeply, deeply thoughtful and engaged and inspired. So I really, I'm really grateful to you. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Nancy, including images of her work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss anything. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. 